Morning, church. How's everyone doing today? I'm just going to move this up a little bit. So welcome back to our Reconstruction series where we're discussing tough questions about the Christian faith. And so a lot of this is inspired by Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God. And for the purposes of today's topic, uh, it's also influenced quite a bit by Mark Clark's book, The Problem of God, as well, both of which I would highly recommend uh, that you guys would pick up, do a little further uh, reading and study on these uh, topics that we're not quite able to uh, fully get into in uh, Sunday morning service. But uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about a uh, topic that I'm sure everyone has probably thought about at some point in their lives. But for right now, I need a bit of a response. If you know this, say it with me. God is good. And all the time. But, wait a minute. Is God actually good? Was God good when you were going through depression? Was God good when your family member got that cancer diagnosis? Was God good when terrorists took thousands of lives on 9-11? Was God good during two world wars? Was he still good during thousands of years where there was disease, famine, drought, slavery, war, human trafficking, and so many other horrific events? When a pandemic hit the world for two plus years and people got sick, many died, others lost their jobs or businesses, and mental health crises in kids and adults alike skyrocketed, was he still good that's a question that many wrestle with today and has probably been asked now more than ever before. In fact, a national poll was conducted that asked the question, if you could ask God only one question and you knew that he had to give you an answer, what would you ask? And the most common response was, you guessed it, why is there pain and suffering in the world? It's a question that not only plagues our minds today, but has been asked the world over for thousands of years. How could a good and loving God allow suffering and evil in the world? It's been one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people finding faith, and one even the most devout Christian has probably struggled with at some point in their life. I'd imagine there are many in this room today and even online that have even thought about it recently themselves. And this question, it might make us uncomfortable. It probably should. You see, what's different about this topic from the three previous messages in this series is that unlike any of the other ones, this one is deeply personal. It's something that all of us at some point or another experience in some way, shape, or form. We actually feel this one. A child may experience pain growing up when they scrape their knee for the first time. In other cases, they may feel a deeper emotional pain if a parent abandons them or their parents get a divorce. They wonder, what's going on if it was their fault and they try to make sense of the world through this pain? A teenager may experience the hurt of rejection or betrayal from a close friend. Or they may suffer abuse at the hands of someone who should be caring for and protecting them, like a parent. As an adult, you may experience things such as broken relationships, addictions, financial hardships, and or losing a job, or yourself or your child getting a serious medical diagnosis. And obviously, there are so many other examples that I could go on and on about today. Whatever it is that 
you experience at any point in your life, you experience in a deeply personal way. And there isn't a single person here or tuning in online that hasn't experienced some sort of pain or suffering at some point in their lives. It's something that we not only wonder aloud, but we feel and unfortunately cannot avoid in this life. So to begin, let's establish a few truths about the Christian faith. We believe that one, God is all good. Two, God is all powerful. Three, God is loving. And four, evil exists. That's not up for debate. That's just what we believe. However, many have challenged this assertion that if there was a loving God out there, to be all good and all powerful would be impossible. 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume posed the question this way, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? Another philosopher by the name of J.L. Mackey says it this way, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil, but because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. These are both fair questions that really causes us to pause and to think about it. But both of these assumptions rest on the fact that the traditional Christian God simply cannot exist due to the presence of evil in the world. But I would offer the opposite take. The existence of evil isn't evidence against God's existence. It's evidence for God's existence. The problem with this assertion is that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Just because you can't see a reason why God would allow such a thing to happen doesn't mean that God himself doesn't have a reason for allowing it. One might ask, well, why would God ever allow any form of evil or suffering to happen in the first place? How could any good come from suffering and pain? Well, one such reason, reason could be what many can confirm to be true. The times where they grew the most personally were during times of suffering and pain. I know I can also personally attest to that. Biblically, we see it from the Old to the New Testament, but we're going to take a look at the story of Joseph. So let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 37, or if you're using the YouVersion app, you can find that at events. So Genesis chapter 37, verses 17 to 20 and 26 to 27. So prior to this, we see a young, arrogant Joseph who begins to have dreams, and he decides to tell his brothers about them. And he essentially tells his brothers that, well, they'll be bowing down to him. Of course, this makes his brothers hate him immensely, and they begin to plot against him, which is where we pick up in verse 17. It says this, They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So after this, Joseph spends years in the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians. And in his pain and suffering, his character begins to be refined, and his relationship with God grows stronger. 
He ends up rising up to be put in charge of his master's household and everything he owned. But through a series of events that came from a false accusation of trying to sleep with his master's wife, he ends up in prison for years, only until the Pharaoh needed someone to interpret his dreams. And Joseph, of course, rose to the occasion. With God's favor on him, the Pharaoh ends up promoting Joseph to second in command only behind the Pharaoh himself. Long story short, Joseph ends up saving thousands of people, including even his own family, from starvation after foreseeing a great famine and storing up during the years of abundance. You see, without that immense struggle, suffering, and trials that Joseph went through, he never would have grown into the person he came to be that saved thousands, including his own family. As I said earlier, many will admit that they grew the most during those difficult times in their lives. God is able to use suffering to prepare, to grow, and to ready us for what's to come. In this Reason for God discussion video that we're going to show on the screen in a second, Timothy Keller offers up an interesting thought on how we may view suffering from the perspective of a six-year-old. Have a look. Let me propose a way to think about this and tell me what you think. Um, six years old. Six-year-olds suffer because they see things happen. Uh, very often they can't understand what their parents are doing, which their parents are... Uh, disciplining them in some way or maybe moving them out of town. They never see their friends again. They feel unhappy, inconsolable, uh, filled with grief, and I think they suffer as much as anybody who's as, as upset as they can be. But we also know by the time they get to be you know, 25 or 30, they look back and they know they really suffered, but now they have a perspective. They realize why some of those things happen. Or even if they were bad things, they, they, they get past them because they're able to get a bigger perspective. If there was a God, why couldn't we all be six years old spiritually, or even worse? I mean, the difference between a six-year-old and a 30-year-old, as different as that is, would be even it'd be far greater to be uh, a human being and then maybe in heaven and seeing things differently. Why couldn't um, we all be six years old? And the reason I'm putting it this way is I don't want to say, oh, I'm sure. I don't see any purpose in this stuff either. I can't even begin to say, I'm sure there's some kind of reason you know, behind the Holocaust that God's working some kind of good. Uh, so I don't want to try to guess. I think it's awful. I do think it's insulting to guess. And yet at the same time, I wonder whether it's possible we're all six years old and it would be possible to have a perspective on which everything we look at would be like the grief of a six-year-old. And so Timothy Keller, he has that interesting thought that when you consider that God, the creator of the universe, and the one who has always been there, may have greater perspective than each of us who, to him, have been around a much shorter period of time comparatively to a six-year-old, to say a 30-year-old. While we may not understand what's going on in the moment, God, who has always been here, has his reasons for allowing what he does. Now, continuing off the atheistic assumption that evil itself proves the non-existence of God brings the next point. And I'll start by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis that puts it eloquently. When I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, 
For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not just simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Although the atheists may say that a good and all-powerful God cannot exist with evil in the world, they operate under some form of what is just and what is unjust. As Lewis puts it, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Like, where did that come from? When you think about it, what collectively makes society deem something right or wrong? Good or evil? Is it the laws we have in place that determine that? If that, then where do we decide you know, who made those laws, and how do they determine what we should and shouldn't do? We all have this innate sense of what is right and wrong inside us, right? But where could that have possibly come from? It could only have come to us from a supernatural God who had given us this set of morals. And as Mark Clark puts it, we are designed by our creator to live in a world without sin and death. And this is why we long for beauty, justice, love, and peace. We were made for a different world than the one we live in, and the feeling of disorder is one of nostalgia. We would not have these moral categories unless God had given them to us. When God created the universe, it was perfect. And without sin or death or evil, there's this longing within us to return to that and a sense that something isn't quite right with the world as it is right now. And we live in a fallen world as we have since the first bite of the fruit from the tree of good and evil. Our morals are given to us through God's created order. Now, with that being said, some may argue that we actually get these innate morals from our evolutionary processes. These morals and worldview came to us over millions of years of trying to survive in a harsh world. This theory kind of breaks down, however, when you consider that if our beliefs really only were developed to help us survive, then there really was no truth to those beliefs. They were simply responses to obstacles that came in the way of survival. Even the famed evolutionist Charles Darwin admitted that if his evolution was true, he probably couldn't actually trust it because it was the conclusion of an animal just trying to mate and survive. Who can trust the conviction of a monkey's mind, he said. Even further in opposition to that theory is the fact that so many of our morals that we collectively hold today go directly against that evolutionary process. It's widely accepted that when you see a person rise to power through war, or military takeover, or genocide, we know, you know, that's inherently wrong. Or when a person exploits others through fraud, no one has sympathy for the person taking advantage of those people who trusted them. We know it's wrong. If our morals were actually derived from the evolutionary process, we would simply see those acts as the strong rising to the top and surviving in any way they can. So in multiple ways, this theory simply breaks down. To have such an innate sense of morals within us can only come from God. You may be wondering, but okay, that's great, but why does evil even happen at all? Of course, you wouldn't be alone in asking that. I'm sure many of us have had that question. One of the things that we know about God is that when he created us, he chose to give us free will. Right from the get-go, God gave us a choice. And we see that in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, which says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God creates the universe and everything in it and gives it to man, but simply tells him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But notice what God didn't do. He didn't force them away from it. He didn't turn them into robots and control you know, everything that they did. 
He didn't change the thoughts of Adam and Eve when they were going to do that. They fully had the free will to make that decision. Now, that free will, of course, it wasn't without consequences. When they ate the fruit, sin entered into the world, and the perfect, sinless world was no more. Sin and death entered the world, and we are still experiencing the after effects of that free will choice today. God didn't want to create puppets that he simply controlled, you know, every action, thought, and decision that we made. He desired to have a relationship with us that wasn't forced upon us, but out of our own free will. And scripturally, we see this all throughout the Bible. And here are just a few examples. In John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, it says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. And Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In each of these, we see that a choice is given to us. God has always desired a relationship with us out of our own free will. Now, to clarify, free will is the ability to choose one's own actions and choices while accepting that we can justly be held responsible for them, whether they are good or bad. Obviously, a byproduct of having free will is that each and every human must make the choice between good or evil, right or wrong. It's not that God has created evil, but rather humans out of their own free will have chosen to do evil actions. And that, along with the choice of Adam and Eve that allowed sin, death, and brokenness in the world, created the reality that we're living in today. But with all that being said, there is hope a greater hope than any of us could have chosen for ourselves. You see, with all of that evil, pain, and suffering in the world, we see God directly involved in bringing about a solution to the problem of evil. As I said before, God so desperately wanted to be in relationship with us right from the beginning of creation. When sin entered into the world and that relationship was frayed, God had a plan to reconcile our relationship with him. He had a plan to overcome the darkness, sickness, evil, sin, and death, and the power of the enemy. When we are going through suffering, we serve a God who sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come to earth as fully man and fully God, to hurt as we hurt, to be tempted as we were tempted, to suffer as we have suffered. 1 John 4, verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world, that we might live through him. Jesus, who was not created, but took part in creation and lived through all of eternity in the bosom of the Father, as it says in John chapter 1, verse 18, a relationship of absolute intimacy and love, well, he was then cut off from God the Father as he hung on the cross. He endured the most excruciating death, not just suffocating for hours with his hands and feet nailed to the cross, but bearing the endless exclusion from God in the place that we deserved. And as it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse three to six, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And even in the midst of being cut off from the Father, Jesus, he does not surrender his faith in the Father, but cries out, my God, my God, which in doing so is using a language of intimacy. And for those of you who may have experienced pain, suffering, or evil in your life with no conceivable way that it could be used for good, Jesus sees you too. Beyond empty phrases that you might have heard before, sometimes there are things that, you know, just truly don't have an explanation to our human minds. And I'm sorry if you've experienced that. But Jesus sees you. The good news is that no matter what we find ourselves experiencing, Jesus gives us the tools we need to handle suffering, to handle the pain, to have the strength to overcome it. He gives us an eternal hope that we're able to hold on to no matter how hard it is, no matter how much we feel like giving up, no matter how much we feel like we're at the end of our rope. You see, when Jesus died on that cross and then rose from the grave three days later, he overcame sin and death. He overcame the enemy. He overcame a fallen and broken world. He offered a way into a relationship with him, a relationship that gave us the free gift of eternal life with him. Free from sin, free from death, free from sickness, brokenness, and the hardships of this world. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. My friends, even in a world where it seems like chaos is around every corner, God is still good. In every moment, in every circumstance, God is still good. And if you haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, but you'd like to accept him as your Lord and Savior today, I'd like to first be the first to offer you a huge congratulations on that life-transforming decision today. And if you've been following Jesus for a while now, I'd encourage you to dig deeper into your relationship with God this week. Wrestle with those hard questions. Shoot us a message asking us, you know, about anything. And if you're experiencing pain, suffering, or just need encouragement right now, both myself and other members of our staff would love to pray with you. So if you made that decision, reach out to us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk about that decision. And for anyone else in the room today, we'd love to pray with you. We would love to walk through this with you. Because the beautiful thing about the church is that we do this together. We do this as one body, the body of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we have you in the midst of a fallen world. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing, we have you. We thank you that despite the brokenness of this world, that you sent your one and only son to die on the cross for us, to bring a reconciliation to the relationship between you and us. Father, I pray that each of us today desires you more, that even through the pain and the suffering, we can still see that you are good. We can still trust that you have a purpose, that you have a plan, no matter how confusing it may be to us. No matter how much we feel like giving up, no matter how much we feel like we just don't want to do it anymore. Father, may we feel your presence with us. May we know that you are with us. May we know that you suffered as we have suffered, that you know our pain, 
that you see us in the midst of it. Father, speak to us today. May we open our hearts and our minds to you. And Father, I pray for each and every person here today that is going through any pain or suffering. Father, I pray that they would just feel your love today, that they would know that they are cared for by you, that they are cared for by the body of Christ that you have risen up around them to encourage them. Father, I pray that they would know that they are not alone in the midst of a sometimes dark world. And Father, I pray that even in the midst of all of this, that we would still take heart in you, that we'd still find joy in you. Because Lord, it's not all dark. We have you. We have hope. We have a light that shines brighter than any darkness. So Father, may we trust in you with everything that we have. We thank you, Lord. Amen.